Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our live stream as we continue in the Gospel of Mark in our series, Enthroning Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn or uh, yeah, turn in the pages or turn on, if that's on your phone or some other device, Mark 13 is where we're going to be today. We are uh, surprisingly uh, two months into 2021 already, when it seems like uh, just a few weeks ago, we entered into lockdown last year. Actually, it was uh, coming up uh, in, in one month from this Sunday, one year ago that we went into lockdown, that we uh, really quickly and, and readily realized that we needed to uh, move our services online, that we needed to change up basically how we do church for the foreseeable future. It's been a year that we've been kind of doing this thing. You know, at first videos from my living room, but now here we are and this is what we're doing. And it is overwhelming to think through, here we are coming up on a year, all that we've gone through over this past year. I mean, the fact that we went into lockdown because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And then on a national level, over the course of that international pandemic, the uh, death of Ahmaud uh, Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, the, the subsequent protests, and, and then even uh, aside from those, the, the uh, looting and riots, violence by and against police officers that we of all things that 2020 on top of that was an election year and it quite a you know it seemed to be contested one at that and then even as we move into uh, the beginning of 2021 the storming of the capitol just a few weeks ago i mean this this year has revealed and set before us um, specifically for those of us that have lived uh at some level of kind of a, a privileged position within the global uh, setup of things, that the world is a crazy place indeed, seemingly out of control. As the psalmist put it, that we are living in the land of death, disorder and chaos. Well, for many Christians around the world in this season of Lent, you know, the weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter is a time of acknowledging and remembering that we do live in this land of death. And, and I would say that we've almost been in this year of kind of Lent, <laughs> uh, living through uh, a collective trauma, a collective um, disorder and, and death and chaos around us. And over the past year living through this, many of us have been pulled between two extremes that of apathy or obsession in relation to these world events, apathy or obsession. Some of us, as we've gone through this past year with all of the different world events and challenges and difficulties and disorders and diseases and, and, and chaos, it's just too much for us. At some level, ignorance is bliss. And so we bury our heads in the sand. We just do our best to kind of avoid it all, to, to be as connected as I can be, but to avoid it because it's just too much for me. Others of us on the other side swing to the other extreme of obsession. We become obsessed, infatuated with the 24 hours, which has now become more like a 24 minute or a 24 second news feeds constantly keeping up on what's going on, slowly becoming a, an actual word in our dictionary, this idea of doom scrolling, where we continually, we, we out, of, out of a motivation of fear, continually look at the news feeds. We're watching in some level, trying to get a, a bead on what's going on in this world. 
This doom scrolling shows itself with many of us, but then we've even seen over the past year that also included in that are those who their fear and obsession with the world events leads them to, you know, QAnon and conspiracy theories or even within the Christian movement, this kind of prophecy, end of the world, doomsday preppers, prophecy hunters. I mean, this, this has been where many of us have been over the, the past year. And you might even look over 2020 and moving into 2021 and, and you've seen yourself like me swinging from side to side, depending on the month and what's going on. There's some months where I've got to delete all the news and Twitter and everything off of all of my devices because I just, I, I, I can't sleep at night. I get so overwhelmed. And then there's other times where I stay up all night watching the news and, and seeing all the details every single day. It's the first thing that I do. We go back and fourth, we swing from one extreme to the other, or we've been firmly planted in one of these, of apathy or obsession. But the question that I wanna ask us today is what, would, what is the response for followers of Jesus in a world gone mad? What intention, what sort of mindset, what way of being should define those of us who identify as followers of Jesus? Yes, we can go to one or the other, but what, what does Jesus call us to? Or maybe better said, what does Jesus offer us in a world gone mad? Today, as we look at Mark 13, we find ourselves quite lucky as Jesus speaks precisely to these questions. Wrapped up within his, his prophecy of the fall, the end of the temple of Jerusalem. What we're gonna find is that Jesus cares so, so deeply about his followers and how we respond and how we live in this crazy world. Mark 13 is Jesus's longest continuous teaching in the gospel of Mark. You know, gospel of Mark, you have little snippets where they'll summarize whole sermons of Jesus in like a phrase or two. Mark 13 gives us almost the whole line of thought. Jesus cares deeply about how his followers live in a world gone mad, but maybe unlucky for us. This is going to require some work because also being the longest and the most pointed to how we live in this world, it also is the strangest passage in all of Mark. It's the most difficult to understand. One uh, biblical scholar and uh, author writes, in the gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than Mark 13. Another writes, no single chapter has been so much commented upon as Mark 13. So we've got a task ahead of us today. We're gonna be looking at all, all of chapter 13 of Mark's gospel. And so today at times may feel like a fire hydrant, but I really believe we need to stick with Jesus's line of thought through the entire kind of his teaching here, because throughout history, when we cherry pick things out of Mark 13, you get all sorts of weird theologies of book deals and television shows and people on TV asking for your credit card number as the end of the world is coming. We need to follow Jesus's line of thought here. It's so important to follow this is I, the original plan a year ago was to have one of my professors and kind of mentors, Dr. Gary Bashirs, here to take us through Mark 13 and to get like a really good old guy that's been preaching and teaching for lots of years. He knows how to distill and do this stuff well, but COVID happened. So you get me for another week. I'm sorry. Now, what this means is I cannot promise, and I don't think even uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs would be able to promise, to make this passage easy. But uh, in studying it for weeks, I really hope that I can, I can lead us through it, where we at least get the major 
uh, contours of Jesus's line of thought here. And I also can't promise to make this short, but I hope to make it engaging. And I really hope to answer questions that you may have about how do I follow Jesus in a world gone mad and all of the kind of end times, end of the world kind of stuff in the Bible. There's a lot here that's really, really good. And instead of doing 12 weeks on it, like the story of justice, uh, we're gonna, I, I wanna follow the line of thought here and kind of bring this all together. So I'm gonna do my best to be a really good tour guide through Mark 13 today. And I believe on the other side, specifically as we land the plane and the conclusion, that I really wanna invite you to lean in as the, we bring together some of the practical application and implications of this. So without further ado, notes are there in the chat. Let me pray for the task ahead. And then let's get into Jesus's teaching uh, in Mark 13. And so Father, once again, uh, we thank you for your word. I am grateful grateful for the fact that we get out of so much, the church and our walk with you, but in particular, your word, we get out of it what we expect and what we put into it. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to give our full attention, to expect out of this, to put our attention into this. And in doing so that you might help us see what it means to live as the people of Jesus in a world gone mad. Be with us now. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 13, let's dive right in. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There's not gonna be one left here on top of the other. They are all going to be thrown down. Here in verse one and two of Mark 13, we come after the end of Mark 11 and 12, and then comes 13, where over those past two chapters, we watch Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, then him going into the temple and surprisingly not being welcomed and worshiped, but condemning and cursing the temple, overturning tables. And then all of Mark 12 has him been condemning and challenging and correcting and calling out the religious leaders of the temple system. And so after the past few days of this, Jesus now leaves the temple for good. And as they're leaving, one of his disciples, as they're walking out of the temple, he remarks, you know, look how incredible the temple is. Look at this, this building, look at the stones, look how great this is. There's a picture you'll see on the screen of the temple in Jesus's day. And so, I mean, it's huge. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world, this giant temple system. This is what they're walking out of and alongside as the disciples are remarking. You can see, I think it's over on the right for you, the little red column there on, on the building, which would be, that's where all the temple teaching and cursing, everything that Jesus had been doing over the past few weeks was over in there. And so they just spent their time in one of the ancient wonders of the world. And now they're walking out and one of his disciples just remarks, man, this thing is a work of art. It is incredible. This is the house of God. This is where our people worship and it's beautiful. And Jesus just says, nope, it's all gonna fall. This is his final decree after a week of challenging and calling out the religious leaders. He's been calling out the temple system. And here, this is his final word. He's no longer dealing with the temple leaders and saying, you guys have lost it. Now he's saying, and you guys are continuing in it and the temple's gonna fall. Jesus sees that the temple leadership, Israel's leadership, Jerusalem's leadership, 
after rejecting Jesus and his kingdom of, 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 of peacemaking and forgiving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, of including the outsiders, and that includes those that you currently see as enemies, that Israel, Jerusalem, and her leadership, they are on a collision course. They are on a collision course of revolt and violence against the superpower Rome. And it's, it's gonna lead to them getting squashed. The temple is going to be, it's gonna be destroyed. There's, there's no coming back from it now in Jesus's perspective. Verse three. And so then after leaving the temple, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they come to Jesus privately apart from the rest of the 12. And they say, Jesus, would you tell us, please, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? These surprised, terrified disciples, they asked two questions. Did you notice that there? Two questions. One, when will these things happen, which is the destruction of the temple, as you just talked about? And what will be the sign? What will be the, the thing that we can see that it's about to happen, that it's coming? I mean, they're looking at world events with a sort of obsession. They're looking for what, Jesus, give us the, the, the lock and step, the things that we need to look for to keep on guard so we can know what to do, motivated out of a fear of what's coming. And even based off Matthew's account, even some anticipation of the messianic kingdom that would be connected to this. They're going, I mean, give us, give us what we need to look for here. Give us an idea of when it's gonna happen and what to look for. Now, Jesus is going to address both of these questions. When is it going to happen and what signs? But first, this is our little detour in the tour. We need to understand Jesus's perspective in what he's about to do. As we move into the rest of 13, we are about to dive now into the deep end. This is where 13 gets very, very difficult. Now, this is the deep end. And I want to offer some swimming instructions before we start wading into the water. Here's what this is. We are about to hear from Jesus, the prophet. Now, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, he's rabbi, he's teacher. One of the many hats that Jesus wears is that of the prophet, that who speaks the word of God and specifically an apocalyptic prophet. Jesus enters into Israel's history. He's going to speak like and even deeply quote from all of the Old Testament, all of Israel's prophets. So much so that Mark 13 has been called the little apocalypse. It sounds cute if it wasn't for the word apocalypse. Now in Jesus's day and in the writings of the New Testament, this idea of calling something apocalyptic or an apocalypse is not about the end of the world. We've talked about this back with the transfiguration, but it is an unveiling of true reality. Not the end of the world, but the revealing of the trueness of the world. What it does is apocalyptic literature is this poetry that sets the present tense and the future within cosmic poetic language so that you might see it rightly. Jesus is going to enter into this. This kind of way of speaking that's grand poetry using symbolism, which like the closest thing that we have to this is apocalyptic literature is like a political cartoon where you have elephants and donkeys that aren't elephants and donkeys, but representing something else. This is what we're gonna be going into in some way but also hyperbole, very strong language, and very big here in what we're about to read, a telescopic perspective. That's the fancy way of talking about this, a telescopic perspective. Oh, here's a way to think about this. Um, or you'll see a picture of the Bald from the Baldwin Hills Overlook looking kind of east, northeast. 
uh, down into, there's downtown and then the mountains, San Bernardino Mountains. So this was back in, I think, December when it was like, we had all that rain and then it cleared up for like a few days. It was beautiful. You could just see for miles. So you can see the mountains back there. And, and the perspective from the Baldwin Hills is that all of those mountains are one just giant, you know, landscape, one giant, they, they overlaid on one another. But then this week, uh, me and my family, we got a little couple of days away that we went up to Big Bear. And what's so crazy is from Baldwin Hills, I see it all and it's one giant mega landscape, one giant overlaid thing. And then as you drive up, what do you find is this thing that it felt like they were all on top of each other. One giant unified thing actually has valleys and peaks and even miles and hours of driving in between some of those layers. This is a telescopic perspective of seeing something from the Baldwin Hills that is overlaid and yet from your perspective is, is all brought together. Apocalyptic literature views history from the Baldwin Hills overlook. They view it as one gigantic whole that is overlaid and, and overset into one giant perspective. And so we tend to think of prophecy as kind of, you know, future telling where it's, you know, we've got the magic crystal ball or whatever. And we talk about one unique event that's going to happen. Far more, more common and regular within the Old Testament and within what Jesus is about to enter into here is not future telling, but forth telling. Not talking about just one unique thing that's going to happen in the future, but, but opening up the present and the future into one larger cosmic story and helping you situate yourself in that story. And so what you find is that in the prophetic literature, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to be talking about uh, his disciples' generation. He's going to be talking about the, the hundreds of years after that, the thousands, the two thousands of years. He's talking about right now and he's talking about the future. He's even talking about his eventual return when all things are made right and earth is made garden again. This is all happening in one poem, one vision throughout the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is entering into here. And in doing so, the whole point is to give you this cosmic story that every single generation then can understand itself as a part of this same tragic story with different global actors as human beings choose for themselves between what is good and right, normally and always at the expense of another. And in doing so, it leads to empires, it leads to chaos, it leads to destruction. And it's this same tragic story that gets played out time and again, yet there is a glorious end in hope. And so the purpose of apocalyptic literature, the purpose of Jesus's little apocalypse is to unveil the reality of true history. So God's people may be faithful in their present. The hope of the apocalyptic literature in reading Mark 13 or Revelation or Daniel or Isaiah is so that as you read that, you may see yourself as living within that cosmic story where past, present, and future all collide for a moment into this one large overlaid landscape, one mountainscape. Now, we're about to get into Jesus's words. There we go. There was your swimming lessons as, as, that, that'll hopefully set up some some grounding as we move through. Now, I just want to give a disclaimer on Mark 13 as we get into this is uh, Christians charitably debate the, the, the landscape and how this plays out here with some debating that maybe some of those mountains in the landscape are more focused on the past and, we're, and some of them are more focused on the future, right? There's, there's, there's dialogue that happens, charitable debate with among Christians and, and differences here. 
Uh, you're going to be hearing from Ryan's perspective today on this. All of us agree, big picture mountainscape with all of the main things that are going on here. There's, there's differences there, but that's a charitable area of debate. For me, I, I tend to lean, I think we get it far more out of Mark 13 apocalyptic literature by remaining and seeing the mountainscape as much as possible of zooming in into past and present and future, but always trying to zoom out and relocate ourselves in the larger cosmic story. But there's more to be said there. Let's get into what Jesus says about this now. There we go. Swimming lessons are done. Let's get into the pool. This is where it gets fun. Maybe that's not the word. Mark 13, let's continue in verse five. Jesus answers the disciples' questions. He began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name saying, I am he, but they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus standing from Baldwin Hills looks to the mountainscape of the future. And he tells his disciples that he sees a future filled with deception and danger and death. So is he talking about the disciples' lives? Is he talking about the past 2,000 years? Is he talking about our moment right now? Is he talking about the future? Baldwin Hills Overlook, yes, yes. All of these things have been as prevalent throughout the world, throughout all of history. And just because of the fact that maybe you have been more secure from some of these things really affecting you doesn't make them any less true. These are a consistent theme throughout this world, which is why interestingly, the disciples ask Jesus, hey, give us the signs of what the end is going to be. And in fact, here in verses five through eight, he says, these things are not signs. They ask for signs and he says, you know, people leading you astray, wars and rumors of war, kingdoms and empires rising against each other, empire, uh, earthquakes and, and famines. Jesus says, these are not the signs of the end. These things are a reality that the end is not yet, that in fact, it is only the beginning. Some Christians, and there's even like a, a rapture ready website that they take these kind of things and they make a calculator based off the news feeds, right? Here's the obsession stuff. And you can sign up for their um, extra credit kind of like subscription service. If you really want to get in on it, don't do that. Um, but the whole point here is they, that some Christians will look at these events here, taking this all out of context and even out of the context of the surrounding verses here of him saying the end is not yet. These are the, the beginning. And they say, based on how many earthquakes are happening, how many wars, how many famines, we can put a calculator to kind of let us know how rapture ready we need to be. Jesus here says, no, these things are actually non-signs. These things are consistent parts of living within a broken world. These things are, these are signs that the end is not yet. These are signs that this is only the beginning of the story. And so what Jesus says is deception and danger and death are regular rhythms of living within a broken world. And herein then also gives us the apocalypse, the unveiling of the reality behind these things that they are what? Not signs of the end, but birth pains, birth pains. As we look at our world and see deception and danger and death, these sorts of things, nations rising against famines, disorder and war, Jesus says these things are not signs that God is asleep at the wheel and not even signs of the end. These are 
the unveiling, the larger cosmic story, birth pains. They are the, 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 I can only right now in my mind have the image of my wife giving birth to our first and, and the, the immense amount of like, I, you know, I'm praying because I think my wife is dying right now and the amount of pain that she's in as she's giving birth to our daughter, Emma. And, and Jesus sees that same pain where it looks like someone is dying and in writhing in pain at some level as, as not being less than pain and being, oh, it's okay. But seeing that there's an end to that pain that what looks like death is actually going to be new birth, that there is a new world being born in the midst of this dying one. This is the cosmic story he wants to remind his disciples of. When you see these things, you're going to think it's the end of the world. You're going to think that everything's falling apart, that God is asleep at the wheel. And I'm telling you, it's not so. There is a new world being born in the midst of this dying one. And so what's a disciple to do? Don't be alarmed at the birth pains. And don't be led astray by anybody in this time. You're going to be afraid when you see these things, rightfully so in some cases. You're going to be terrified. Don't be anxious about this. As best as you can, acknowledge that this is part of living within the cosmic story of a world that's hell-bent and a God who is going to take it and, and redeem it. And so in the meantime, don't let anyone lead you to astray. These are, in fact, non-signs. He continues in verses 9 through 13 where he talks about these birth pains. He says in verse nine, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are about to say but say whatever has been given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus continues his prophetic word. In verses 9 through 13, what we just read, I mean, he eerily summarizes, prophesies the, the entirety of the book of Acts right here. If you've read through the, the book of Acts, those early years of the Jesus movement, the church, this is the, the Reader's Digest version of the book of Acts. It's exactly what happens. And yet in the larger cosmic mountainscape, this is what's been happening to followers of Jesus throughout human history. Those who bear witness to the resurrected King and his inaugurated kingdom will be persecuted by the ousted spiritual and political leaders of this world, the kings and empires. And those who belong now to the family of God will be handed over and hated by their own blood relatives. This is part of following me, Jesus says. And here's that once again, for all the benefits of religious liberty and where we are, are granted to live, this, this has been the consistent theme throughout the global historical church. Of, of Christians being handed over, of Christians being martyred and killed, of families betraying and delivering them. Oh, this is part of it. And so part of what's happened within the American story is on one level, I think we need to be grateful for religious liberties where, where on one level, we don't need to fear these things. And yet, because we read this and we expect it as we should, th there's a whole sermon here that we don't have time for. The, uh, there's an, there's a, 
a complex that many Americans have that there's persecution hiding behind every single thing. I think on one level, we just need to acknowledge we're in a place where this isn't necessarily as prevalent. It may come in the future, it may not. There may be genuine persecution that happens. Regardless of the fact, whenever you feel that what you're feeling is persecution, we ask the question of why. Most Americans feeling, most American Christians that feel persecution, it, it normally isn't because of religious issues. It's normally because they were being uh, something less than Christian. But regardless of that, I, to, to continue with Jesus' thought here, Jesus says, regardless of where you live, when and if, or if and when persecution happens, he says, expect it. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be surprised about it. There are some of us that, that we, we have such a vision of Ameri- that maybe on the opposite side, not expecting persecution at all, that at the first sign of us seeing this on a global level or in us finally having to stand with Jesus on something that goes against the cultural trends, is that immediately it's like, well, then of course Jesus can't be this way because Jesus has never ever done anything but agreed with my larger perspective on life and the way that me and my friends see things. And Jesus says, actually, in fact, when you begin to feel yourself going against the cultural moment, even more so to being arrested by governing authorities and religious authorities, he says, man, this is part of following me. Don't be anxious about it. Verse 10, he says, but he says, do verse nine, be on guard. I love this, be on guard because it can be translated in the Greek that Mark's writing. What Jesus is saying is uh, be clear-minded. That's what be on guard can be translated to. Just be clear-minded. Think rightly, give up your utopian visions of what following me is going to entail. Of me just like walking down the neighborhood and like, hi, diddly ho neighbor. Can I tell you about my Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? He agrees with everything that you do, you know, gives the full thumbs up for all of it. And, uh, but he, he would like, you know, he, and then, oh yeah, of course he'd love to follow Jesus. The utopian vision has to go. Jesus says, be on guard, be clear-minded that following me is going to be tough going. It is going to require challenges from, from within false teachers and false prophets and without synagogues and political leaders. What's so profound is that Jesus says right in the midst of all of this church gospel hostile language and prophecy, this is where his, his strongest claims of, of evangelism happen within Mark 13 evangelism, bearing witness, preaching the gospel to the nations is not a peacetime. It is a peacetime thing, but Jesus seems to locate it as when it happens best is actually in the context in a culture that is oppressed and against it, which is what we find in China. It's what we found throughout church history. The reality is, is that when, when this is, you get lukewarm Christians when you don't have this sort of stuff happening where evangelism becomes a side thing and true following discipleship to Jesus becomes kind of a, I can pick and choose at my level because Jesus is a larger thing we can all. When you live within a culture that Jesus's name is oppressed by synagogues and oppressed by Caesar, then you're not showing up for anything less than the real deal. And you're not content with anything other than telling everybody about the full thing. So surprisingly, Jesus says the gospel's spread does not go through, it happens in peacetime, but it's explosive actually. The main command happens in the context of a culture that's hostile to it. Once again, we see Jesus's vision for a a ethnic and a racial reconciliation within his church. So the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. Once again, you hear me, this is the Greek word ethnos. It is the word that we get ethnic from. It is not just nation states, but peoples. 
of all color and tribe and tongue, having the gospel preached and brought to them. So Jesus says, man, this is what I'm calling you to, so don't be anxious when it comes. Because in fact, as you find yourselves in those situations, it will be the Holy Spirit who will speak through you. Verse 11, he says. So in all of this, Jesus is here radically redefining the win of of discipleship, not just for the 12, but for you and me. Specifically in verse 13, 12, yeah, 13, the very end of verse 13. What does Jesus say in all of this? The one who endures to the end will be unsaved. What is your vision of successful, successful discipleship to Jesus? What's your vision of, of what you're gonna get out of this thing and what it's gonna take for you to succeed? The, the what's it gonna take for you to be saved, you know? For some of you, we have some vision of like spiritual thriving and success and, and like, you know, we're just like floating because of how whole, we just walk into people's rooms and everybody becomes a Christian. Where Jesus drastically lowers the bar for you and just says, man, endure, hold on tight. The one who remains faithful, the one who doesn't let go. And this comes not just in the midst of persecution, but as the, the closing of all of what he said in verses five through eight about living in an age where there's false teachers and earthquakes and wars and rumors of war, empires coming against one another. Jesus says, in this sort of world, a world gone mad, where those bringing the gospel and the kingdom of light and love are the ones that are snuffed out and killed, when the world is falling apart as empires and wars and famines and earthquakes happen, he says, my mission vision for you, what I'm calling you to is just to endure, to hold on. Some of you have been so exhausted because 2020 feels like it's the first time that you've actually entered, you've actually been seeing how mad the world is. And I just want to encourage you. Some of you feel this vision of discipleship of what you were, what you want to be or who you're called to be. And that's good. And we affirm that. But at the same time, I just want to encourage some of you, the fact that you're still here in Jesus's eyes is, is a win enough from 2020. The fact that you're still holding on is a win enough. After the past year that we've gone through, there are some of us that have some vision of discipleship as thriving and it's destroyed all of those assumptions. And Jesus says, my call, your win is, survive, is making it through a world gone crazy, still holding on to hope that there is a new world being birthed out of this. Some people have like theme verses, you know, for this year, my theme verse is, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want or whatever. This, 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 the end of verse 13, this is my, my theme verse for this year. The one who endures will in the end be saved. This, just kidding, but seriously, like th- this is something that I think we drastically need to carry because we've turned discipleship into a product that is gonna somehow make our lives better. And does Jesus transform our lives radically? So yes and amen. And at the same time, we need to see ourselves as, as being called to, man, the win is enduring. I keep showing up that I'm faithful giving all that I've got. And then also, like he says, leaning on the Holy Spirit when I don't have anything else to give. Let's continue. Verse 14, where he says, uh, but, <clears throat> so we, we just talked through all the non-signs, Jesus, now he continues. But when you see the abomination of desolation, okay, what in the world? <laughs> Standing where he or it not uh, be, 
uh, let the reader understand, which a parenthetical statement, okay, in the middle of Jesus' sermon. Uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not go back and get his coat. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that this may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you in those days, look, there, there's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't, don't believe it. False Christs, false prophets, we're gonna, are they're going to rise. They're going to perform signs and wonders. And their, their goal is to lead astray, if possible, the elect, those whom he chose. So I'm telling you, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So Jesus, after talking about all of the big non-signs of just parts of the, the larger cosmic mountainscape, the story of humanity, he now sets his sights in on one of those mountain peaks, one of the events specifically surrounding the fall of Jerusalem and its temple. Remember that that's the context of the conversation they're having. Jesus here in, in talking about those who are in Judea fleeing to the mountains, it's evident that he's talking about those who are in the region in and around Israel and Jerusalem. So after giving a list of non-signs, just things that are part of the story, Jesus says, now this is the sign. This is what to look for when you see it. And he talks about this thing called the abomination of desolation. I told you this was a really fun passage. Now, some of your translations that you might be reading from have abomination of desolation in quotation marks. Those are the ones that are doing a really good job in helping you out. Or at the very least, that have a footnote next to abomination of desolation that point you to Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. Because Jesus here is not inventing something, some abomination of desolation He's quoting from the prophet Daniel. Once again, he's standing on Baldwin Hills with Daniel, looking at the cosmic story. And he points out one particular thing that Daniel himself pointed out, which is why Mark gives us this little parenthetical statement in the middle of Jesus' sermon. Did you catch that? So Jesus is talking and Mark goes, let the reader understand. It's a way of him going, <clears throat> dear reader, go read Daniel. And what Jesus just said will make a whole lot more sense. So what's, what's Daniel saying? What the, the, the abomination of desolation, Daniel 9, 11, and 12, like I said. In Daniel, in his prophetic vision, the abomination of desolation was a um, desecrating sacrifice that happened within the temple of God by the pagan emperor Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. Historical event, it happened. Antiochus Epiphanes, after taking Jerusalem, goes into the Holy of Holies, into the uh, altar mount, and there sacrifices uh, a, um, I believe it was a pig, um, but that might have been in a different account. But the, um, basically made a, a desecrate, a sacrifice that, that broke down the temple. And specifically, it was also a sacrifice made to his gods. This is what you did back in the day when one empire beat the other. You went to their temple with their God and said, ha ha, we and our God beat your God. And so Daniel talking about the abomination of desolation, he's talking about a very real historical thing that is going to happen. And in Jesus's day, days did happen. And Jesus looks back at the Antiochus Epiphanes and what happened there, the abomination, the desecrating sacrifice in the temple. And he says, it's going to happen again. One last time, it's gonna happen again. And 37 years later in 70 AD, 
It did. It was a Jewish revolt led by the zealots. Those leaders who rejected Jesus's kingdom vision right here and continued on that collision course I talked about a minute ago, it led to a Jewish revolt. And how does this global superpower do when you revolt against them? Not well. They send in their soldiers. Rome takes the city. They march into the temple. And right there on the temple mount, they offer sacrifices to Roma, the goddess, the deity of Rome. Ha ha ha, we won, your God lost. This is the abomination, the desecrated. And then not just doing that, but then went on to tear down all of the walls, what Jesus just talked about. You can see a picture right here of, uh, remember the temple from before, and then a picture from today with these giant car-sized 2,000 pound plus stones that had been leveraged off. It took two weeks of Roman soldiers pulling apart the temple, tearing it all down. Not just an abomination of desolation, but it's a a greater one. Not just desecrating, but tearing it down. The same thing happened. And so Jesus says, this is what happened. Even more than that, if you ever go to Rome, and you go to the Arch of Titus, you'll see a picture here that will uh, overlay. You'll see the Arch of Titus there. And then you'll see one engraving that happens within this where Titus was a Roman general. He was part of the plundering and the taking of Jerusalem. And you can see in that picture there, one of the things that they listed him as doing is you see a Roman soldier, what, what are his soldiers carrying out? There's a menorah there. This is the lamp stand within the temple. Well, they stole all the gold instruments of worship. They basically ended the whole temple system. So this is, this all happens here. 37 AD, Jesus is looking forward. He's using language from a prophet hundreds of years before him, talking about a different instance. And Jesus says, look, the same thing keeps happening. It's the story that keeps continuing. And so that is in one way, Jesus saying, when you see that happen, that is not a sign that God has lost to Rome it is a sign that God has finally handed Jerusalem over to its implications to be crushed like any other empire. And so Jesus asks, when you see these things happening, what should you do? Disciple, what should you do? He says, verse 14 and 16, run, run, flee, get out of there. Flee is opposed in particular, what he's saying for his disciples in his age, flee is opposed to staying and fighting. This is not your battle anymore. Israel is not your kingdom. And its fall is not something that you're, you're there to defend. So run. So this is not, I told you so, Jesus. He is terrified in verses 17 to 18 about the implications of what Israel is bringing on itself. Lamenting, guys, just, I mean, it's like he's praying, God, may there be no nursing women, no pregnant women in that day to get out of that city and t- it's just, or may it be winter and the wet city, like, Jesus is not, this is not, ha ha, I'd like totally, he's, he's so heartbroken. Matthew's account has him crying. He, he's heartbroken at the reality of what Israel has brought on itself. He describes it in verse 19 as the greatest distress that's ever happened. This heightened language of him talking about in those days, he's talking about the abomination of desolation, what happened. For Jews, for him as a Jewish rabbi, for him as Israel's Messiah, this was the worst thing that could happen the house of God torn down. And Jesus says, and it's, it's judgment on Israel for the way she's rejected the king. She's rejected the kingdom. She's rejected God. He continues in verses 20, 21 and 22 to say, in this time of upheaval and terror, 
be on guard. Be clear-minded against false Christs, Messiah figures, and false prophets. Keep yourselves from messianic political figures who want to offer you the world and keep yourselves from spiritual teachers that want to offer you shortcuts. Verse 23, he says, I've told you these things beforehand. Beware these things, be ready to run. Church tradition tells us that after the fall of uh, Jerusalem, immediately uh, when they, they entered into the temple, that there was a giant flight of all of these early Jewish Christians that they ran off to other cities. Like they were listening to the teachings of Jesus and they were ready for it for these 37 years. And when it happened, they said, Jesus was right. And they left the city. And this is one of the reasons why Jewish Christians um, continued to be able to make it out of there. And so there, there's, there's a lot here and it's hard to kind of like, okay, this was all 70 AD. What does this have to do with me? Remember, telescopic, Baldwin Hills, it happened 167 BC. It happened in 70 AD and it, it happens and it will happen. On one level, I don't want to, you know, too many people make connections between America and Jerusalem and like Israel and the temple system. This is not Ryan doing that, but empires fall, they are plundered from empires from without or from eating itself from within. You know, you take the Titus monument and the guy carrying out the menorah and you just replace that with somebody carrying out the speaker podium. This happens. Empires turn in on themselves and chaos ensues as they follow the way of, of the human way, as opposed to the way that Jesus is inviting them into. And so this is the story of history. Empires rise to power and they fall by other empires or self implosion. And it repeats and it repeats and it repeats. And so throughout church history, we found story after story of Christian refugees that flee in the time of war or even in the time of persecution. Martin Luther back uh, about 500 years ago in the midst of a plague wrote uh, this whole treatise called on whether one may flee a plague. There was precedence for Christians to flee in the midst of wartime stuff and get out of there. That's not your fight. That's not your empire, not your kingdom. And so Luther had to do some good theology to try to think through, well, how does that impact a plague with him basically saying, you know, it could be one way or the other. Each individual Christian should, you know, survive. You should read it just on whether one should flee a plague. It's really good. It's 500 years old, but it's really good. The whole point here is that all of this is coming together that Jesus says, man, in the midst of history repeating itself, of empires imploding and falling in on one themselves and other superpowers coming in to dominate, there may come a time for Christians to flee but there's never comes a time for Christians to fight. That is, it's just, it's profound that Jesus says here, man, if this is for Israel and for Jerusalem, don't fight for them. How much more so for, you know, fill in the blank, what nation state you may. In the moment of terror, we, 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 there may come a time to flee that we will stay and serve and love as long as we can. There may come a time to flee, but never fight. And in the midst of those times of terror and fear, there are gonna become those who come and clothe themselves in God talk who call you to anything other than or less than the true Christ, his true kingdom, his true way. And so Jesus says, beware, be on guard for his disciples, be ready. This is the story that history repeats. And then he continues in verse 24. How are we doing? All right. Verse 24 and 27. Jesus says, but in those days, after that tribulation, after the abomination of desolation and the fall of the temple, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So the big question of the text with Mark 13 being so challenging is, is Jesus here jumping to like end of the world, kind of his return stuff? Or is he still talking about the disciples' lifetime? Has Jesus shifted? I mean, right at the opening of verse 24, he says, in those days. And right after this, in the next section, he's going to say that this is all going to take place within the next 40 years. So 24 through 27 I just, you know, that, that asks the question. Okay, in the context of what's surrounding it, maybe what Jesus is getting at here and in quoting in verse 24 from Isaiah and 25 from Isaiah and 26 from Daniel, maybe Jesus doesn't mean what I think or what I've been led to believe. Let's just, let's just entertain that thought for a question for a moment. So verse 24 and 25, Jesus describes this collapse of all of creation, everything falling apart. Once again, hopefully you have a footnote. If not, this is Jesus directly quoting word for word from Isaiah 13. Word for word from Isaiah 13. So the question is, okay, what's Jesus quoting? From the Baldwin Hills perspective, what was Isaiah seeing that Jesus now sees himself as seeing the same story playing out? And what is it in Isaiah 13? You can read verses 9 through 10 and then 17 through 19. This collapse of creation language is interlaid in the same poem about the fall of the arrogant and violent empire of Babylon. The Medes would come in and crush Babylon in 587 BC, 539. In 539 BC, the Babylonian empire would be crushed by the Medes over the course of two weeks. I mean, imagine that, two weeks and America's gone. Two weeks, you know, and, 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 and one of the, the global powers of the day just disappears. So the question is, well, over those two weeks when this happened, did the sun get extinguished in 539 BC? We have no, no, we, we know that it continued. Apocalyptic poetry. He is seeing the cosmic story with all of its poetry in Isaiah and now Jesus quoting from him that when these empires fall, it's like the end of the world. It's like creation falling in on itself. The world ends as we know it. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 13, and this is profound, as if to say, like the fall of the violent and arrogant empire of Babylon fell apart by the Medes, so too Jerusalem is going to fall by the Romans. Jerusalem, its temple, its leadership is the new Babylon. And so Jesus describes for him the future using the same language and imagery of what happened in the past. And in describing you know, 70 AD, his future, what would now be our past, the cosmic perspective of what we're saying here, the telescopic vision says that he's also talking about our present and our future. There are moments over the course of the story that plays itself out when empires fall, that it feels like the end of the world. It feels like creation is falling in on itself. And again, Jesus is saying in the wide view of history, Jerusalem is the, the, the newest player on the stage. And as it happened to Israel, so what happened to Rome, so has happened to every single superpower over the course of what happened with Nazi Germany as it raised up. Most people, Germany was the superpower of what, it was the hotspot of all intellect and all visions of society up until World War II. When it turned in on itself, became a broken version of what it could be. And in doing so then led to chaos and then other empires came in. It's, it's, it's the same story. And so in the midst of that, 
I think I would just, my, my little note is as grateful as we can be for the nation that we live in, I think Jesus would invite us to see what does it mean for us to see ourselves as a part of that story, to see the United States of America as part of that story. I'll leave that there for another day. But let's keep going. In verse 26, where we have this crazy vision then of Jesus as they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great glory. Once again, he's quoting here from Daniel 7. Just like with Isaiah, he's talking, he's using a past person's perspective to fill in with his own perspective. The Baldwin Hills Overlook, he's seeing the same event using that same language to fill it in. And so son of man coming in the clouds, where is he? Is he coming down? Is this, okay, now he's talking about the return. Daniel 7, what's Jesus quoting from? Go read Daniel 7. Daniel is a prophet. He's in exile in big bad Babylon. And one night, whether it's a spicy burrito or the Holy Spirit, he has this crazy nightmare dream. And in this dream, he sees these great, like these hybrid super beasts that are the size of nations and they're tromping down, they're crushing cities and people. The angels say, these beasts are the empires, the kings of this world. So these beasts are coming around, but then what happens is he sees that they crush this one figure called the son of man. And after being crushed by the beast, God raises up the son of man victorious over the crushed now beasts who then comes with the clouds, it says, and sits on a throne in heavens with glory and honor with his rule and reign being synonymous with the rule and reign of God himself. This is Daniel's vision. And what we know throughout Mark's gospel is what is Jesus's favorite nickname been for himself? The son of man. He sees himself in some way as that figure, which once again, you can't call Jesus just a good teacher. This is, if Jesus isn't the son of man, this is delusions of grandeur on a whole nother level. So the question is, when do we see this happening? The Daniel 7 story play out, the beasts, the empires of the world, and they crush one called the son of man, but the son of man comes victorious and then rules and reigns over them and ascends to sit at the right hand of God himself, his rule and reign being synonymous with God, the father, the creator God of Israel. Where does that story play out? Within the next few days for Jesus and his disciples, for us just, you know, the next two chapters, What more is Jesus' cross than him being crushed by the empire of Rome and the demonic powers that empower it? What more is his resurrection than him coming over and his ascension to the right hand of Father? Do you see this? Is Jesus is saying here, in the quoting from Daniel 7, is there something happening within your lifetime that will be the Daniel 7 fulfillment? Even more than this, in just a chapter later in, in Mark 14, Jesus says as he's being on trial before the religious leaders, from this moment on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus, from this moment on, the son of man prophecy has been fulfilled and he's sitting at the right hand. The moment that he's about to go to his cross, Jesus says he's enthroned. And so Jesus is saying here, many after the fall of Jerusalem will finally see the son of man ascending into it, they will see him for who he is. They will see me for who I really am. As my prophecy here and my, my rejection of the temple has been fulfilled in Rome's crushing it. Now this may be different as some of you have been led to read this as the second coming of Jesus. And the reality is you're not wrong. Daniel 7 was used throughout the New Testament to talk about Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension and also his return. 
And that was because at his ascension, the disciples heard in Acts 1.11 from the angels, as he left, so he'll return. So again, the early church, and I believe we in reading this need to see that they saw Jesus's death, resurrection, his ascension, and then also his return as being overlapped when they saw the whole story of history. Somehow one and the same, that yes, when you then make the drive, maybe separated 2000 years plus, but one and the same from the prophetic portrait. And reading this with that in mind is crucial for the rest of the passage because it becomes the basis for our faithfulness. That we are not following and serving Jesus and enduring and being on guard and bearing witness because we believe that Jesus will someday be king, but because we believe that he is currently enthroned as king. Our hope for a new birth and a new world in this land of death is based not in just some future hope, but in the past resurrection and ascension of our Lord who brought life out of death. So too, he will bring resurrection of this world in the midst of death and the empires of this world. And when we read this as referring to his death and resurrection and his enthronement, it also then shapes this kind of angel's statement that comes right after that in verse 27. That he's not talking about just some, necessarily some future vision of the, you know, rapture of people being ripped out of their clothes up into the heavens but the present work of what, he, what, what God has been doing ever since Jesus' ascension. He's been sending out his, the word angels there can be translated as messengers, whether divine or human messengers or both, out to the four corners of the world. As he just said back in verse 10, the preaching of the gospel must happen to all the nations. And it happens after this has all taken place. And so here, we'll try to make a quick descent then through these last questions where Jesus answers the questions of when. Verse 13, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he, or it can be translated, it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. After answering the signs question, Jesus now turns to the disciples' question of when. When will this all happen? When Jesus says, you see these things taking place. Yes, the non-signs, but more specifically, the abomination of desolation, right? The fall of the temple. Then you know that he or it is, is arrived, and so is, the, is it he, the son of man, or is it it, the fall of Jerusalem? Once again, the large picture gives us yes, to some extent. Jesus says this is all going to happen within the next generation. Generation in Bible talk is the next 40 years. And Jesus was really close, 37 years it would happen. Jerusalem, Rome would, be, would come in and sack Jerusalem. There'd be the fall of the temple. And so amid all of this terrifying prophecy, Jesus reminds his disciples, look, Heaven and earth will pass away. Rome and Jerusalem, America and fill in the blank is going to pass away. The one hope that you have is not a geopolitical system. It's not even the earth that you're standing on or the sun above you. It is my words. It is me and who I am. This is the source of your hope. In verses 32 through 37, he then continues with this question of when will this happen? Being in this generation, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So be on guard and keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. 
He commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and he finds you asleep. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay awake. So Jesus gives this quick parable of a master of a house who leaves and asks his servants to put things in order. So the question is, is the master returning to the house, God coming in judgment against Jerusalem through Rome, or is it God and Jesus at the return of history? I think at this point we can adequately say yes. Jesus says the fall of Jerusalem will be within this generation, but the day and the hour, who knows? But also at the same time says the end and the new beginning of this world also, who knows the generation, who knows the day or the hour. So on both of these counts, both the fall of Jerusalem and the return of me, Stay awake, be on guard, be prepared for your master's return. But Jesus specifically ends by saying, what I say to you, I say to all. And here once again is the Baldwin Hills Overlook perspective. That Jesus is not just talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He's talking for all of his disciples throughout all of history. Because every single generation is going to play out this story again until it finally comes to its conclusion with his return. He sees all that's to come over the next 40 years as a paradigm and pattern for the next 2000 plus. What he calls his 12 disciples to in their lives, he calls billions of disciples to in their own story and generation, in their own peak in the mountainscape. And herein lies the purpose of the little apocalypse of Jesus in all apocalyptic literature. To encourage his disciples to be faithful in their part of the story and to see themselves as a part of that larger story as they together await the story's culmination, culmination and new birth of a new creation. This is what it's all about. Now, goodness me, here's where we're at. I wanna bring this together. You may now freely move throughout the cabin. We're already an hour and you just let's, let's, let's land the plane really quickly here. We made it through Mark 13. Let's land the plane here. Christian hope is not positivity. We are living in a crazy world that's caught up in a pattern of rising and falling empires, which Daniel and Jesus all saw as these super beasts empowered by a demonic evil. Christian hope's not positivity. We are in a world gone mad. Christian hope rather is based on the enthroned son of man, that his resurrection over death, over the empires, over evil, show that his return will finalize this story and bring life out of death. So then Christian hope is apocalyptic. It is an unveiling that death, disorder, and danger are actually birth pains of the new creation. And our hope is built on that reality because of the resurrection of Jesus. And similarly, Christian hope is apocalyptic. That it unveils that our moment and what we're living in is not strange and that we are not alone but that we are living in our peak, our part of the mountainscape in the larger cosmic story that's playing out. And so how do we live within our story? To repeat Jesus's words and to bring them together. Don't be anxious. Expect this. As heartbreaking and terrifying as it is, don't be anxious. These are the natural implications of a world gone mad. Three times he says, be on your guard, be clear-headed. He says, don't be led astray by false teachers and false messiahs and false prophets, which are legion today. Everything from QAnon and political idolatry to end times, doomsday preppers, preppers all the way to deconstructing the faith apart from doing it with your Bible open and within the larger conversation of church history. Don't be led astray, but endure 
persevere, give it all you've got and lean on the spirit to carry you when you don't got anything less and continue to bear witness by gathering God's people from all over the world in our corner of it here in LA and all the way over to those in Cincinnati to love God with all that you are, righteousness and to love your neighbor as yourself, bringing justice and inviting your neighbors to this hope. And in doing so, when we endure, when we bear witness, when we're not anxious, when we're trusting in his word, when though we may flee, but never fight, when we stay awake and when we trust in his unending word, we as the church, as the faithful people of Jesus, in some way get to be the midwives and doulas of new creation. There alongside the birth pains, but ready to rejoice and so our point is to be the best nurses and do, be as faithful as we to endure the best that we can in this season. And the way that we do this right as I close now is that all of this, all of these commands throughout, all of the yous are not singular, but plural. They are y'alls. All of these commands that Jesus has given to endure, to bear witness, to do this work, to enter into this is is not given to individuals, but to a community. Implicitly, you cannot make it through this crazy world by, your, by yourself, which is you and Jesus. Jesus gives his commands, his way to endure belongs to a community where we lean on one another. We preach to one another. We call each other back from being led astray. We encourage one another to endure and we bear witness together. And if anything, we need to prioritize this so much more in this time when terror and fear may feel high and embodied presence is low. We need to fight for these things, even in the digitally mediated ways. So in effect, what Jesus brings us all together to say is in a world gone mad, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm, don't be anxious, be on guard, continue to trust in me and my word and carry on, endure, persevere, witness and keep awake. Let's pray.